0: You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back to the Poetry of Impact. Today we welcome Josef Abramowitz, CEO of Gigawatt Global, a green energy impact platform that recently launched a solar field to power 10% of Burundi, the world's poorest country. A special thanks goes out to Tonic, the Global Action Community for Impact, for introducing me to Yosef and making this episode possible. In this episode, Yosef takes us on a wild ride of his roots in social justice, from growing up in an activist family that marched through with Martin Luther King Jr. to later finding himself traveling to countries where he literally thought he was going to die. While many folks might see Yosef as a climate guy, his heart is really with the people And he measures his success based on making the most impact amongst the world's most vulnerable communities. And he knows that renewable energy is the necessary key to unlocking a better quality of life in the world's poorest communities. He comes to us with a softness and practicality around the urgency of renewable energy, and with a deep heart, seeing the humanity behind the world's tragedies. So drop in and enjoy this episode with master storyteller, Yosef. Hi, Yosef. So good to have you here today. Thank you, Gino, the philosophy master of impact poetry. <laughs> well, I um, hope to live up to a small part of that um, high expectation. <laughs> well, I mean, you uh, you come recommended to me from a lot of different folks, from a lot of different angles, from um, Israeli-Palestinians' relationships, to climate change, to frankly, just um, A great personal story around impact so maybe let's begin there i mean how how did you get to the point where yeah i know you're known in this world of impact in terms of climate and um, conflict resolution amongst israelis and palestinians and abroad in general but um, i want to sort of go back to where it all began like where did you have this aha moment to realize like you know i want to do something impactful in the world (laughs)
1: I don't think anybody wakes up and says, hey, I want to be an impact investor when I grow up.
0: I think <laughs> for sure. Maybe
1: a Danny and Barry's kids in Australia because, you know, it's all around them, but probably the only ones. Um, no, it, it, look, it starts out first, you know, in, in your personal journey and in the values of your home and your community. And um, uh, my my parents, I guess, were of the 60s. right? They're, they're married in... 62. My dad uh, was on the March on Washington with Martin Luther King in '63. Uh, I was born. I'll give your listeners a hint. I was born three weeks early, from nine months from what had been after the March on Washington. So I was I was I was conceived in idealism either before or after (laughs) the the march when my dad took the bus down with civil rights workers from new york down to dc um my mom from you know i remember growing up and she was involved in um, anti-nuclear protests very radical group called the clamshell alliance uh, against the seabrook nuclear plant and um, very active in the equal rights amendment which i couldn't believe didn't pass like it was Unfathomable, and and also look, I you know I grew up in a Jewish community, and we we had two million people trapped in the evil empire, of the Soviet Union, and it was a human rights issue, and we hit the streets. So so my journey was one of pursuing social justice, and only later in life uh, did I stumble upon uh, impact investing as kind of the stage of my. Trying to amplify frankly um like uh like uh, I've been privileged to do I think a lot of nice good things in the world, but i'm fifty eight years old, and at this point, everything I want to do impactful is too 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 cheap a word almost like I want everything to be exponentially impactful because we're at a time and there's so many people suffering, so I guess um each stage you kind of you 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 either succeed and then your horizons expand or you fail and you learn something which also expands your horizons and it's the Spider Man with with power comes responsibility. So you know, and as a child I was of course immersed in comic books. So it it all starts there.
0: Gosh, so um so i grew up uh, in on a dairy farm in california which uh, didn't have any social activism you <laughs> um, we were
1: connected to the earth in a sense
0: yeah yeah for sure uh but what i'm getting at is that um, your relationship with your parents and what you saw your parents going through was probably uh, look i mean they're pushing the threshold of power and control and usually power and control pushes back to some extent. And so take me through that experience as a kid, as you're experiencing and seeing this, because I've never seen that. I never saw that as a kid. Obviously I see that as an adult now, but what's it like to see your parents who are confronting power in essence, obviously getting some pushback uh, at different points in time and seeing that, you know, face to face. It's an
1: interesting question. Um, I'm sure I didn't really have a sense of the importance, the magnitude, the forces that we were up against, but we lost Seabrook and they built a nuclear power plant. And I couldn't believe it after learning about all the evil things that could happen. The, uh, and again, the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, on the civil rights pieces, you know, you did feel the march of progress. And then later I was fortunate to be involved in the anti-apartheid movement at a critical moment and saw, you know, essentially the equivalent of the Red Sea splitting, uh, you know, there and in the Soviet Union and, and other issues. Um, but in truth, as a kid, I was much more affected by my parents' divorce, <laughs> I think, than by any global things. And and as, I think, an as the oldest kid when your parents are getting divorced i think you you feel you have fantasies of trying to make peace right i think you you know and and i guess that that was strategically nurtured those brilliant parents they wanted me to be an impact investor one day but i you know but, but <laughs> you know but you you, you want to make things better when things are uncomfortable and i guess i was just the right age where
0: they inoculated that as well uh, into me inadvertently. So you talk about this anti-apartheid movement, and I'm sure you'll get into the stuff that you're involved in now in terms of, um, you know, my understanding is that you go into a lot of places that a lot of people normally don't go into because they're perceived as conflict areas and, and conflict zones. One how do you find out, like, how do you wiggle your way into these scenarios? Uh, what, it, it's not that like you just open the paper up and there's a classified ad that's come on down to this area, you know, you're invited. Uh, so I'm curious if, if somebody had it in their heart to actually be involved uh, in a way that you're involved, how does it begin? Like, where do you start this process to sort of wiggle your way in and all of a sudden become uh, a, a value uh, to the process of life? Huh. Look, I don't think there's a
1: magic formula. I, I I was in Jerusalem with um, we had a Nobel Peace Prize winning president, Shimon Peres. For his 90th birthday, he brought President Clinton and President Kagame from Rwanda in. And I was there when Clinton apologized to Kagame because the Genocide in Rwanda was on Clinton's watch. And in a sense, the notion even of opening a paper, we all missed the Rwandan genocide. And I was living in D.C. and I was politically active. Like the President of the United States missed the Rwandan genocide. So I think also when you have that realization that, oh, my God, like today people are being killed in all of these places, right, that... It's a combination of where your heart goes, and where your heart goes is often, it follows the people that that you meet. So it's not like you open a paper or you get a text that says, help, I'm stuck in South Sudan and a ceasefire broke down. If you would have asked me out of the blue, Eight years ago, before I started in South Sudan, would you go to South Sudan? I'd say, no way. you got to be crazy to go to South Sudan. They get independence and they blow it and they start killing each other. But through the people, right? Through through other people who, who have a love of the place and who meet people who you can see, hope is not extinguished in their eyes. At that point, you don't have a choice. If you're privileged to meet people on the front lines of morality and civilization, you're going to walk away. And so, you know, with whatever failures I've had, I've had a good measure of success, certainly in the solar and impact investing space. And so you meet the people and you can't abandon them. I mean, you can't. Cause who else is going to go in like nobody? And so I have to say, it's also, it, 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 you know, you can see it as a burden or, but it's also a privilege. These people are heroic and, and they think I'm going to help them. So what, you're going to walk away and then open up the paper the next day and go, ugh, I should have done something. No, I mean, Clinton probably wakes up every day and goes, ugh, I should have done something. I'm
0: not going to be that guy. A lot comes up for me as I hear your response. But one thing is is that um, how do you overcome? It's like, I get it. Like, I get this idea that somebody reaches out to you and says, I believe you could be of help down here from what I understand the work that you're doing, doing in the world. I welcome you down and I'll help you navigate this. That all sounds good in theory for somebody who hasn't, uh, but how do you get over the innate bodily fear of just protecting your own body? Because you're also a smart person that knows that you are potentially at risk, even though you're with people that have invited you down who are claiming to do their best. I'm just curious on how you get over that fear component when like, you are in South Sudan.
1: So uh, a little bit is, um, again, coming back to personal biography. When I was 18, 19 years old, I was in Israel on a gap year program. There's a war raging in Lebanon, but I was on a border kibbutz down south called Keturah on the Jordanian border. And all my friends were watching the stars at night, which was glorious. You see the whole Milky Way because we're in the desert. And my eyes, though, were always across the border of to Headlights of cars on the Jordanian side. I, that those were the lights that transfixed me, and and I did the stupidest thing I've ever done, and I I figured out how to fly during Ramadan to Egypt, so I wouldn't need a, a visa in Jordan when I landed, and and I and I went exploring, looking for peace, and I and at a certain point I realized, oh my God. I am going to die. <laughs> and I'm at Petra. And there's a there's an English speaking tour guide speaking to a bunch of Japanese tourists and he goes, You see that mountain over there? That's Mount Nebo, from which Moses stood never entered the promised land. I'm like, oh my God, I'm out of here. So <laughs> I I head out to the mountain and I get to the top and there's another mountain. I go into the valley. I go up that mountain. I'm like, I'm going to sneak across the border or something. you know. I get to there, and there's a bigger mountain. Again, I do it one more time. I get to the top. I see the flatlands of Israel in front of me. The fence is somewhere over there. The sun is setting. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm not going to get out of here alive. And at that moment, true story, and it's getting dark. This goat with a bell comes meandering up the hill towards me. I'm like, oh my God. And I had made a deal. Oh, I forgot the main part. I made a deal with God. I said, God, if you get me out of this alive, like I'll devote my myself to you. And I follow this goat at night through these valleys back to Petra. And a bunch of other, you know, and a guy with a dagger from Syria who's going to kill any Jew that he meets. And I'm saying I'm from Lithuania. Like, so, and my poor mother gets this like mystic, you know, telegraphic signal that I, my life is in danger and it's like, whatever it is. And years later, there are Jews up in Northern Ethiopia and uh, no one believed, I, I knew from good sources, so the journalist that they were burning the homes of Jews uh, And it's like the wild west up there. And I'd gone with a bulletproof vest. And I had two young kids at home. And I'm like, I was asked to like report on it and hopefully save them. I go up there. and Sure enough. I'm in Northern friggin Ethiopia. And I'm held at gunpoint, you know, trying to document this thing. And another miracle happens. This is another story. And I, and I come back and I tell my wife, I am never doing that again. Like, I'm married now. It's different when I was 18, 19, right? We have got these two young girls. Now we have five kids. I'm not doing that again. So I'm keenly aware of several things. One, I've got a family, <laughs> you know. And two, I've, I have a sense of being in real danger. and And third is I have this, it may be a, naive belief that since I'm doing something good, I got an angel kind of following me around. And so, like, I, even though we're trying to do solar in Gaza today, I would never sneak in there because there'd be a dead man or a hostage for 10 years, right? But South Sudan depends when you go. And we, you know, we have the State Department warnings, we have other, you know, intelligence that, and we have, you always need good local partners. And uh, like when we were in Burundi, I physically wasn't in Burundi, but my team was in Burundi, leading up to the coup there. And I'm I'm the CEO, responsible for people's lives, pulling people out, and you know the whole. They got out and they got on the last flight before the coup. And I, again, I said, I'm never doing that again. because like, people, so I think it looks more dangerous from the outside than it really is, because we, like, I have a deal for Mogadishu, but there's a State Department, you know, kidnap warning currently, so I'm not going to go. But we always register with the U.S. Embassy and a couple other strategically located intelligence services that once in a while might look out for us in case things go sour, but we're not really taking risks. I think just for the outsider who may not know the particulars of tribal warfare or political situations, it looks more risky, but I, I got kids, man, you know, I got a wife, so we balance. And so far so good. Hope this is not the last podcast I'm ever doing. So far, and so far we have an angel, (laughs) you know? uh,
0: So So what kind of work are you doing when you do go in? Like, I mean, what, like what mission are you working on that would compel you to actually go and go through all of this? So look,
1: we, we learned solar by doing it in Israel. Um, I didn't know that my angel investors were impact investors before the concept. Um, we built a profitable company there and did 12 solar fields. So we know the business, right? The question is, can you adapt it? to the neediest places on the planet and that's been an open question we we did the first one in rwanda 20 years after the genocide and people hear rwanda genocide you go, gotta be crazy to go there it's actually probably the safest place on the planet today as a counter reaction to their genocide i went with susan three of the kids and we'd have the kids run off into villages ahead of us and no fear, rule of law, and it's interesting, right? Because you, these are the nicest people on the planet who took machetes and killed each other, and there's, you can't really explain that. But it's the quadruple bottom line. I mean, that's the thing. If, if you know, if I was a a pure climate investor or just financial investor, there's plenty of places you can do solar without. But it it doesn't interest me. I I was already a climate investor in Israel. Great. Very happy we did that. A lot more that needs to be done. I don't want to say we're done. But for me, it needs to make sense as an investor. Okay. Impact capital, patient capital, fine, but should be market returns. But I get out of bed for the other three (laughs) impacts, right? The humanitarian, the climate, environmental, Development, sometimes there's a geostrategic or peace dividend. Um, When you have all four or five of those, that's a win. That's a big win. So the financial one, you can only do the four or five, you know, three, four other impacts if you have a financial model, right? So we've gotten very good at the risk management, both physical, right, and financial risk. But wow, you can. Bring power to 87,000 people and businesses in the poorest country on the planet. Great. Okay. It's taken me too long. <laughs> like, you know, it ate into some of the upside on it. But by doing this in Burundi, we proved to the whole world that solar and green energy is not just for rich countries. You can do it in Burundi. You can do it anywhere. And that's pretty satisfying. And we're getting a decent return to our investors.
0: Yeah. So you currently live in uh, Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned that there's um, some projects you have going on in Gaza. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was in Israel and I, it, it was amazing to me how close Gaza is. i mean, first of all, Israel is so small. I mean, coming from the United States, it's just, it's so small. And everything is so close, like Tel Aviv. to is Jerusalem's what an hour, hour and a half, <laughs> and and yet it seems like two different worlds. And now all of a sudden you have Gaza, which from a Western media perspective, you know, I never had any context of how close that was. Yeah. And without getting into sort of the political nature of that conflict, what I'm really interested in is is that because you mentioned you can't go into Gaza, but it sounds like you're working on having projects in Gaza. So how does that work? How do you, so like, you know what, I have this mission. Also, I'm just aware of the nature of the situation and I'm not going to pretend and be naive about it, but I still feel like the mission transcends that awareness to some extent. Curious, can you take us through that process of, uh, do you have Gaza partners and how do they not get threatened? Because I'm guessing there's shame in working with Jewish people, if, if see if you're hard inside Gaza. I don't know. I'm assuming this, but um, I'm guessing shame and honor is a big part of trying to separate uh, people out and to not cooperate and so forth. So look, first of all, you're right. We are in like a very tiny little corner of the
1: universe and the politics are incredibly complicated. Politics aside, there's two million people who don't have energy security and barely have any right we're so close geographically right that tel aviv has what 20 second warning from when a missile is launched or something until it could hit in jerusalem we're so far away i think we get 30 to 40 seconds you know (laughs) 20 seconds or 25 seconds of tel aviv and there are evil people in the universe like i i don't think it's about like settlements or you know whatever i mean there's cults of death who, who who funnel their energies and monies and resources towards towards killing rather than building, rebuilding, you know, affirming life. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, one of those cults of death is in Gaza. And my belief system is that Hamas, which is funded by the Iranians, essentially also has their population held hostage. You know, people with guns. You know, the people who Islamic fundamentalists, it's more important to kill our kids than to feed and educate theirs, you know? So they're victims too. And you have to be able to see the humanity in that tragedy. And you can't just pick up, open the paper, as you said, and say, oh, I'm going to, it all depends on what you said, local partners. And I'm very fortunate that I'm associated with something called the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies. It's on the kibbutz, kibbutz or I was just both an uh, 18, 19 year old and where we moved to and ended up with partners starting the solar industry. But there are Palestinians, Jordanians, Israelis, international students studying the environment with a philosophy that nature knows no borders, right? Like you can't just solve air pollution or water on this side if everything is interconnected, right? And in Gaza, think about it. They don't have any power. So they're wastewater right? The sewage, like, I don't know, like 100 million liters, something ridiculous a day is going into the Mediterranean, a shared ocean. The currents bring it up the coast just a little bit, 50 kilometers or something. And our first desalinization plant is there and they have to turn it off because of the gunk, right? Or there could be a cholera outbreak and doesn't recognize the border. So the solutions are are all regional and there's an interdependence and mutuality I don't think we'll really make any money in Gaza, frankly. Um, But we're, you know, I'm here in DC. We're looking for also grant money, concessionary financing. With that, we might be able to, but there it's just these poor people and, and, and our traumatized kids, you know, like, uh, you know, we have a safe room bomb shelter in our apartment by law and we've used it. So, If they get water and energy, does it mean necessarily that we'll have fewer rockets and we'll have better living? I'd like to think so. I'd like to try.
0: Yeah. What is it about, um, again, this is not something that I'm I'm familiar with, just like I grew up on a dairy farm and you grew up in an activist family. Uh, Again, I grew up in the middle of California and the San Joaquin Valley, which is one of the farming capitals of the entire world. We had nothing around us that felt like a threat, uh, per se. So, this idea of uh, you, know, you have five kids and they're growing up with this awareness around that um, you can be attacked. And as a parent, you're probably asking yourself, is like, gosh almighty. I know, for instance, I, I have one child at the moment. and. I can't when when I think about the bandwidth that I put in, he's only four and a half years old. So perhaps maybe this gets a little and I'm guessing if I had two or three kids, then 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 I become less concerned. You know, the first one, you always think it's dangerous sort of all all the time. But I guess what I'm getting at is, is that safety and feeling safe is the at the core of being able to actually feel into love, Mm. for instance, uh, to open your heart because your, my heart tends to contract if I even feel the slightest, slightest element of safelessness. And so for the, for me, this is all new to hear about, and I've read about it. And, you know, we obviously have mutual friends that also live in Israel, and I've talked to a few of them, and it bothers the hell out of them about what their kids are having to go through. But can you walk us through, Yosef, I mean, your experience with that being um and now, you know, now, now, now being a father of uh, five children.
1: Look, I, I think if you were going to talk to the kids in the area of your dairy farm today, mm-hmm. they don't, they're, they're in a different world. I don't know how far away those wildfires are or the effects of the droughts, right? Or, you know, or. The cost of basic goods or energy because of ukraine i think our kids are growing up that maybe it's four and a half you're gonna hold them and protect them for as long as you can but there's a world out there and the world that we're bequeathing to them is totally messed up and they're finding out at a younger and younger age like like my my heroes are the the what I call the Greta girls i mean the 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 strike for climate movement in israel is like 80% girls i answer to 15 and 16 year old girls and they're awesome and so i think almost nobody's childhood is protected anymore and maybe this is the great awakening that we need if you if you remember before covid greta was on a roll like she was going to get the Nobel. Like we were going to get real, real agreements with teeth on climate. <clears throat> you know, right. Now we're trying to three years later, get back on, back on track. And we're, we're not, we're not there yet. Instead everyone, all the energy companies are exploiting the thing in Ukraine to drill, baby drill more. You know? It's a connection. Like it's just, uh, but I, I, I do think in Israel you have a different sense of it. On the one hand, your sense of personal security, our kids were out. To God knows what hour. and I would never do that in any American city. you know <laughs> Like forget about yeah. it. Um, on the other hand, four out of five you know, went through the army. When my baby my baby, just finished her first month in, in the military. You know, and um, so so I I, th- I think we don't have the privilege of living in Israel of kinda not paying attention to the news because it's so immediate and I think the rest of the world, including your dairy farm, are getting a rude awakening now. Um, that's just how scary the big world is and we we grown ups messed it up and we've gotta do our best to fix it and by the way as John Kerry said the other day in New York at the UN General Assembly you know 100, 200 trillion dollars is going to move and it's the greatest economic opportunity in the history of the world as well you know green energy so it's nice to have a business model to save the world just can we do it fast enough and for everybody
0: yeah so there's two issues there one is the timing of it and then the second part is the equity of it, right? Is it for everybody? Can you walk us a little bit through what exactly your model is? That uh, so you mentioned, you know, the dimensions that you know the impact goals. But I mean, how does it actually work? Like, who's going to reach out to you? I mean, w- when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of a project, mm-hmm. and say, yes, it's time to move forward. What does it look like? So I want to give credit
1: to Obama and the Obama White House. Because, I mean, I guess he had also a personal feel for Africa, maybe different than previous, you know, U.S. presidents. And he basically said, look, 50 years of foreign aid, we didn't lift the continent out of poverty. Okay, we did some nice things, USAID, et cetera, but we didn't do anything transformative. And they did an analysis and they said two things. One, the missing ingredient was energy access, right? Because how can you have education if you don't have at this point computers internet etc how can you have healthcare? this is before you needed the vaccination for the covid let alone right without access to power how can you have economic growth in these countries if there's no industry that would open manufacturing whatever if there's no power right or or it's super expensive so they, they correctly identified energy access as A key ingredient towards um, economic and social development. And the second thing, they said, look, even we in the West, we have limited capital. We need to figure out how to incentivize the private sector, which has unlimited capital that they would deploy if they can make a profit if they didn't think they're going to lose their money. (laughs) And so, how do we use our? Credit rating and our capital—not just to do nice things, but how do we provide guarantees for the for-profit people that if something happens—revolution, nationalization, currency, whatever—that the investors will be protected. And so we have this used to be a secret sauce, but now everybody knows. I'm telling everybody right now (laughs) we have a way of doing an insurance wrap on the contracts we get in places that are not bankable. Again, I just said Burundi is the poorest country on the planet. The utility is not rolling in dough, and they don't have a positive credit rating, right? South Sudan is a new country. They didn't even have a grid as of, you know, a year ago, whatever it is, right? Um, And so here's how it works and why I come to Washington a fair amount, whether it's the U.S. government, World Bank, et cetera. They say to us and our investors, look, if something bad happens, we'll give you 90 cents on the dollar back on equity. Okay, and all lost projected profits for the duration of your contract. Meaning, a solar investment gigawatt Global in South Sudan is a better and more secure investment, With better returns, with the full credit rating of whether it's the World Bank or the US government or fill in the blank, standing behind it for 25 years, usually linked to inflation, so that it becomes an annuity. We know how to take the risk out of the Excel. And you look at the numbers and go, oh, can I get in on that deal? It's like, no, sorry, you're not an investor with us. We're over <laughs> You have to be with us during the risk time if you want access to our to invest in the equity and the cash flow. So good for Obama, and we've
0: you yeah. know perfected it uh, in a couple other ways. What's the scope of the work you're doing, uh, Yusuf? Like, um, I mean, give us a sense of the scope. Look, the scope
1: is not enough. Give you talked about what's the time frame, right? Like yeah. there's a carbon clock, right, of about seven years. Well, I can boast and be proud of we have a pipeline right now of seven hundred megawatts, maybe even a thousand, a full gigawatt between now and seven years from now. With World Bank or American government guarantees. Big friggin' deal in the scope of that, right? <laughs> Uganda will connect through total one evil pipeline to do can knock it all out, right? So we do um uh green energy projects between let's call it two of them have been a little under ten to a hundred megawatts. If it gets too big, the Chinese will come and bribe it away from, you know, us and stuff like that. We're like in the midfield zone. And we, again, we usually go places where nobody else will go, or, or if there are others, we'll do it completely differently, much more geared, by the way, towards the impact. Uh, we're not just financial investors. So uh, a solar field of 20 megawatts without storage, let's call it $20 million. So of that, usually about 30% is equity, which has the guarantee. The rest, the United States government is begging me for more deal flow. I'll tell you where the risk is, right? It's a bad impact, but we also gotta pay the bills and return equity with with, um, the premium. The risk is that I have always been wrong on the amount of time that'll take us to de-risk a contract, a market, a country. No matter how many times I go, oh, we have a great tool set. We've learned more things. Oh, we got this person. We got that. We have everything's lined up. We're going to get this in a year, two years. Friggin' takes longer because of the evil inclination that lurks deep in the soul of policymakers who've already enjoyed the benefits of the corruption of energy companies previously doing business in their poor countries and and so that's where the risk is is that it takes longer which is why we try to get grants and we're always you know a little bit more friends and family you know we're about to do our series a and that should take care of the need to keep raising money for the building the pipeline so yeah you know we i you know i do hope we'll exit in four or five years with a gigawatt under development. I think that's a good legacy, particularly because it's going to be in places where people are the poorest, most vulnerable, most fragile. And we were able to transform, you know, millions of lives through what we're doing. And um, someone can build giant fields in California on your dairy farm or right next to it and produce a lot more energy. But they'll never have the satisfaction of the impact but we don't have enough of or often enough when we do maybe it's sweet
0: yeah um, i do want to ask you about this idea of um i've been studying energy markets for about the past two or three years and it was it was a byproduct of wanting to understand the crypto markets better in terms of how crypto mining works which ends up which ends up leading you to the energy markets. It's been a fascinating study and you can actually track the bulk of western civilization to energy. Yeah. I mean, if you have it, you evolve. If you don't, you, you kind of just stand still and you pointed this out and um I'm trying to think of the book that I read. It was basically the history of energy. And I guess this person's the, rec, the you know, the forefather of like the history of energy. I forgot what his name is. It was really a moving book. Mm. And I realized that everything is energy when, when it's like, it's the input into everything, like this computer and the internet, everything requires energy as an input for, it, but we often get locked into with just the output and the usage and utility of the output the but when you backpedal just a bit and look at the entire infrastructure of how what it means like you pointed out medicine and education um we can look at we can look at all the output of all those things but the reality is that if you don't have enough juice Mm. none of that happens and when and so when i started pondering this i must say that um i started realizing that First of all, we're nowhere near the amount of energy generation that uh, we should be generating. But I'm curious about your perspective on whether we're ready for a complete transition over to renewables like immediately at the risk of cutting off legacy supplies um, or is there some midway range? And I get it. The vested interests want to keep that all that carbon that they still have under their ownership and they want to extract it. I look, I get that vested interest. But I'm also wondering if the climate folks actually hurt themselves to some extent. And I'm one of those climate people. Um, I'm one of these climate people, but I've kind of backed off on this idea of thinking that all forms of energy besides renewable are, are are just bad. And so it just needs to be completely exterminated. So blocking anything and spending a lot of time sort of just beating up on sort of the legacy energy infrastructure. What I'd like to know is because you're in and on a day to day basis, and this is just my Ongoing discovery over a couple of years of of digging in. You're in it. Where is that sweet spot that we need to be thinking about or how to be thinking about energy markets?
1: What's your son's name? Uh, Nathan. For Nathan, I'm going to tell you the truth that you don't want to hear. We need to go for the 100% now on renewables. Now. Now, now. Yesterday, now. Like five years ago now and it's totally economically feasible and advantageous it's technologically possible and advantageous and and i can prove it to you because no one believed that and what we did was even though israel itself is not doesn't have good renewable goals we took the region from the red sea to the dead sea this is back over a decade ago we said let's focus and see if we can get at least one region of this planet to go hundred percent solar during the day by 2020, meaning the UN goals for 2030, could we accomplish it essentially a decade earlier? And the UN goals for 2050 is the hundred percent, right? That's, you know, where everyone's, and therefore no one has to make any changes in their lifestyle or energy grid or energy sources because it's, it's too far away, right? It's actually not that far, but it, it's kicked the can down the road, and through a lot of hardship. But the first region in the world to be 100% solar powered is the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, and we hit it by 2020 during the day, and by 2025 it'll be day and night, and it'll be a third the price of using gas. What are we doing if we're not doing that globally? Like, the, the price of batteries is tanked, what is it, 20% a year for the last X number of years. Price of panels dropped 85% over the last decade to come in. And we're subsidizing, like, to the trillions of dollars, the fossil fuel industry. It's not even a level playing field. What are we doing? The answer has to be for Nathan now now yesterday now (laughs) and we've proven it you can come during the day and you can blast your air conditioner for all you want in the south of israel in the hotel room and not one little carbon dioxide atom is going to be added to the atmosphere in the third most extreme desert in in the world that's a it's a tourism port city right by 2025 day and night like, Nathan needs you to feel the absolute imperative that it's now. It's not a midway point. It's not any of stuff. It's now. And it's cheaper and it's better and it doesn't go boom. And methane is 84 times more dangerous g- greenhouse gas and even carbon dioxide. And we're doing more drilling licenses in the name of Ukraine. We are a species that is just self-destructing. It, it on purpose because of the short term quarterly profit reports of ExxonMobil and Chevron and all of their friends, to go hundred percent i've done it i've done it already. People are making money, and it works. Where's the friggin rest of the world it's for Nathan
0: Yusuf, I want to end there man that's the, the that's a powerful uh, that's a powerful ending um. Obviously, people want to gonna uh, and want to learn more about the work you're doing in the world where where can people learn more about you? Uh, look you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Captain
1: Sunshine with a K my daughter runs my Instagram. I don't even know what it is. I think it's like official Captain Sunshine. I don't even know it's there but um look, go to www dot com I don't even know if we've updated it in the last five years but but, you know, you can email me, Joseph, J-O-S-E-F, at com, And um, look, we we need partners. Our ability to deploy is dependent also on capital that comes in. And if you're patient capital, you're going to do just fine with us. Please, God. I'm 100% in, by the way. I would never ask anybody else to join this journey if i It's not about other people's money. It's all of our family's money and a lot of impact investors. And um, soon we'll do a series A, but we still have room for friends and family. Uh, So please, please be in touch. If you, if you want to be part of the solution, particularly for the poorest, hungriest, most vulnerable people on the planet. And that's not us. We are so privileged. Let's use our privilege for good.
0: Amen. Thank you, Yusuf. I really appreciate your time. Thank
1: you good luck re-examining your portfolio <laughs> get out of the uh, fossil fuels please.
0: <laughs> all right thanks so much hey everyone thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact the podcast exists for and because of listeners like you be sure to subscribe to the poetry of impact podcast on your favorite podcast player and if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.